Oh God, there's some real ropey Coleman Francis Monster I Go Go level stuff in season one. This time we watch Season 1, Episode 12, Untamed Youth. The other MST3K movie with Mamie Van Doren. Ah, but first, let's do what Mamie Van Doren does best and stretch out some shirts. Because that's <laughs> one of the many, many items that we have available in our merch store. Yeah, we've got t-shirts with our logo and, of course, mugs and stickers and phone cases and tote bags and tapestries. Oh, tapestries are very trendy right now. So. If you need to, like, lay out your college dorm, we've got everything you need. Yes, if you're still in your graphic tease phase, please support us. <laughs> I have yet to leave. Yeah, I, I, I'm still there. And you know what? I, I'll be there till I die. I want to be a wizzled old man. And, uh, you know, I'll still have a, a perhaps Super Mario 1-Up shirt. Can you? What is your favorite graphic tee? Uh, my favorite graphic tee. It's an otherwise red shirt, but uh, uh, besides that, features a striking image of, you guessed it, Donald Pleasant. <laughs> I actually made in the 90s an iron-on of B. Arthur. Oh, very nice. But I didn't do it properly, so it got all wrinkled, and I'm like, eh, it's kind of appropriate. Who would notice? <laughs> I, uh, I, I I had an iron-on, I don't know where this came from, but I had an iron-on of Larry from the Three Stooges. Oh, no! <laughs> I thought it was the best thing, and it was perfect, because for whatever reason, my mother, she would go to golf places, she would go to golf clubs and things like that, and, and uh, places where people golf, not the clubs themselves, <laughs> and she would bring myself and my brother golf shirts though we did not golf <laughs> nor as teenagers would we want to be seen as people who go to golf clubs <laughs> and uh so i i ironed over my larry over the golf resort logo <laughs> <laughs> anyway if you would like a graphic t-shirt to iron on your own picture of larry you can get it at it's just a show.com slash store yes store your house with our goods <laughs> should check it out. Producer Chris had a hand in all of the design, and they're all very well done. Mm -hmm. Chris, is Curtis the Dinosaur in any of these creations? Oh, yeah. Yeah, you can also get a Curtis the Dino Plant, as mentioned on an <laughs> a episode. A long time ago. <laughs> a long time ago. <laughs> and never again. <laughs> but always in our hearts. I'm looking at Curtis right now. Mm. I have yet to kill those air plants. They're still doing very well. Wow. Episode four? Yes. As mentioned in episode four called Yelling at Dinosaurs, about future war, uh, mm. Curtis the Planter, who is now Curtis the Dino Plant, the mascot of It's <laughs> Just a Show and of Megaphonic FM. We had a vote for who the mascot should be, and it was between Curtis the Planter and Eddie Deason. <laughs> <laughs> and it was a very tight vote. <laughs> <sighs> well, should we get to the actual movie at hand, which has, unfortunately, no dinosaurs, but plenty of planters? Uh, I'll, I, you know what? This judge will allow it. <laughs> This time we watch Season 1, Episode 12, Untamed Youth. Mitch, a sleazy small-town sheriff, captures two untamed youth in the wild. They're Jane and Penny Lowe, hitchhikers from Illinois, who are arrested for being vagrants and sentenced to work as farmhands by a judge who looks like Aunt B. They will be unpaid help in cotton-picking for the villainous trap whom Judge B has the hots for. 
Now, I swear this is the plot of Untamed Youth and not a written Stimpy cartoon. Anywho, Jane and Penny fall into some of your standard women's prison stuff, like fighting a hot-headed fellow inmate slash cotton picker, and Trap also tries to make Jane his regular Saturday night thing. But there's no time to think about that when so much of the movie is a musical, as Jane sings and dances for the bulk of its runtime. Unfortunately, one of the untamed youths dies, and a bunch get sick because Trap's been feeding them nothing but dog food for the last little while. Ah, it's always darkest before the dawn, because Judge Aunt B looks into Trap's setup and finds him bringing in illegal Mexican immigrants. So Trap is punished, Judge B is heartbroken, Penny gets married, and her sister Jane becomes a singing and dancing sensation, thus remaining the only truly untamed youth in the picture. Meanwhile, on the satellite of love, in the prologue, Joel is doing some tinkering on Tom's body while Tom's head referees from further along the table. They discover a very, very long magnetic tapeworm nestled inside. Meanwhile, in the invention exchange, Joel has invented a pipe with a smoke detector and fire extinguisher built into it, which backfires, or backwaters, when Joel ends up getting a face full of sprinkler water. Meanwhile, the Mads have invented a truly disturbing tongue puppet in which Dr. Earhart dangles a gummy monster from his mouth. Gross. In segment two, Joel, Tom, and Crow talk extensively about Greg Brady in homage or in mockery of the lady in the film who kind of looks like him. The SOL crew demonstrate an admirable knowledge of Greg Brady's character arc, especially considering this was done pre-internet. After they get to his post-sitcom life, however, his biography gets a bit speculative and, uh, dark. It concludes, thank you, Greg, you are groovy. In segment three, Crow has a flashback where he remembers the time they hooked up Gypsy's brain to Cambot to find out what her thoughts look like. It turns out it's filled with Ram Chips and Richard Basehart. Why was this segment a flashback? We may never know. In the fourth segment, Gypsy gets a bit burpy after being programmed to fabricate raw cotton. On Tom's prompting, she eventually starts regurgitating saltwater taffy, paper towels, and a second-generation Tom servo. We learn later in the theater that Joel immediately destroyed the duplicate. In the fifth and final segment, Joel tries to explain the purpose of the so-called goofy guy, the only bespectacled teen in the film. Although it doesn't happen in this movie, Joel suggests that goofy guys are a staple of teen horror flicks. Their characters are so deliberately irritating that the audience is actually relieved when they get killed. So that explains the odious goofy guy, but will anyone ever explain the odious geechy guy? I'm still wondering about that. Yeah, this this was a strange movie. Well, it certainly stands out if you're watching this show in order, and it must have surely stood out at the time. It's the first non-sci-fi movie of the Comedy Central run, and it's probably, weirdly enough, it's probably the most lavishly budgeted movie, despite taking place in about, what, three settings? <laughs> and starring no one more famous than Eddie Cochran and Mamie Van Doren. That's right. So this is the second Mamie Van Doren we've seen out of sequence, the other being Girl's Town, which I believe was also a Warner Brothers movie, so she must have been on contract with them. And they stand out for being very polished-looking films that are otherwise just quite dull. Yeah, although Girl's Town, uh, it also, also fancy, but not quite Warner Brothers. Girl's Town was MGM. Oh, was it? Okay, so she wasn't a contract player then. No, from what I understand with Mamie Van Doren is, I mean, I mean do you know the fun and colorful history of, of, of our gal Mamie? 
I do not, actually. Ah, well, there's some, they, like, as we have gathered from Girls Town and dipping in and out of her Twitter, is that maybe it's just great. <laughs> and uh, she started off, she was, uh, uh, she was doing some modeling, however reluctantly, when she was very young. And this attracted the attention of Howard Hughes. Uh, he does have an eye. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I think that when Mamie Van Doren is in the room, <laughs> you'd have to be blind not to notice. True. But he was in the audience. He saw her, and he began dating Mamie. And this led to her just kind of appearing in RKO pictures uh, in insignificant roles. And... Eventually, she meets a fellow named Jimmy McHugh, uh, who is a songwriter, and Van Doren describes him as her Svengali. Uh, McHugh basically took her under his wing and tried to make her a star. And while this potentially sounds like it could be worse than it is, there was no CD relationship beyond that. In, in interviews, she's always stated that... Uh, McHugh just did it because he believed in her, which is kind of sweet. Um, and the first thing that McHugh made her do was uh, really go into acting lessons and also, I think, some singing lessons as well. Then she becomes a universal contract player. So she's still with a major studio, and, and she's working with major studios even in movies like Girls Town and this one. And she was with them for a while and had her first child and was informed by Top Brass Universal that uh, sex pots don't have babies and was let go of her contract. <sighs> and that's where we get uh, into Mamie at this point in her career. She, she'd also had the baby before she got married to the guy. But doesn't that make her more of a sex pot, Chris? I don't know. But she just... can't help it. She's <laughs> got to have it. Well, I found it very interesting about the two movies, Untamed Youth and Girls Town. There's only two years separating them, at least in terms of when they were released. But she looks completely different in Girls Town, which is the later movie. Here, she very much is doing like a Marilyn Monroe kind of thing. Very wide-eyed, innocent, you know, bubbly blonde. And she looks and acts so different in Girls Town, where she's hard and flinty and she's more of a Jane Russell type. Like, even her eyes, she's slinting them a little bit. What's the word I'm looking for? Squint? She's doing a yeah. Riker? Is that what you're talking about? Yeah, she's squinting them a little bit. Her her lips seem a little bit thinner. I don't know. Like, she's still stunning, but there's just a... Maybe there's just a big difference in makeup artists, but I I was really surprised how different she looked. Yeah, with all the squinting, Girls Town is definitely from her Eastwood period. <laughs> yeah, she had more of an Eastwood thing going on, exactly. Uh, but other than that, I was also surprised to see that she can sing and dance. And that, no, not really, well, she can't. <laughs> <laughs> I was about to say, I mean, she can move and and uh, she can warble. Uh, I love Mamie Van Doren, and I, I, will not, I will not knock Mamie Van Doren, but I will say that, oh God, it was like listening to a sick cat. It was terrible. I, I, Mamie Van Doren can't sing. Yeah, she can't really seem to do a lot with her voice. Oh, and, and you know what? Actually, quick question, because the thing I noticed the most, even more than her look being different, which I just kind of put down to makeup. Mm -hmm. I felt that her voice was completely different. Whenever we hear from Jane, she sounded like June Foray during her, during doing her, her rocket J squirrel voice. Like she was really high pitched mm, and, and, yeah. and really youthful. And I suppose that's, that's what she was trying to play up, but it sounds really artificial and maybe she's trying to sing in character. And maybe that explains that. I don't know. I don't know. 
I should check. Do you know how old she was for this movie? Let's see. Let's see. There's a way to find out. So, she was born in 31. So, yeah, she would have been, what, that was 57? So, actually, yeah, no, she, she would have been just 26, yeah. Okay, but definitely, you know, a little long in the tooth to be playing a teenager. Well, roughly about Beverly Hills 90210 aged. Yeah. <laughs> she would have been as old as the late Luke Perry was yeah. when he was a 90210. R.I.P. Dylan. Mm-hmm. Um, but beyond that, it's it's hard to say much else about this movie besides, you know, the magnetic Mamie Van Doren being in it. It's well made, but the story has a lot of issues and it's boring. And I think we'll talk about this a little bit more later, but also the riffing is kind of disengaged doesn't really seem to be all that connected to what's going on in the movie. Yeah, it's odd. It's it's funny. This would be you know, this is the first one uh, in the the Comedy Central, or I guess back then the Comedy Channel days, uh, and even more briefly the CTV days, um, where they are you know playing with something that isn't straight sci-fi. I know there's like a couple of movies because they did like some movies of the week that were not sci-fi during KTMA. Right. But for the most part, they're also in like a sci-fi and horror vein. Like that's the bulk of KTMA. And so this is very different. This is very out of their comfort zone. And it's a it's a big stumble. Because I rewatched between this recording and our episode on Robot Monster earlier, uh, I watched that episode again. And I because I I'm still really impressed that despite earlier experiences I had had with season 1, uh it was still a strong episode. Mm-hmm. And that predates this one. Uh, and yet all that momentum that uh, the show had kind of been building towards, it, it just wasn't there. And I think that comes to like their relative uh, wet behind the earsness in handling not just this kind of movie, but also writing a show out of this length, of this new style, and trying to figure out how to do it. Like, this is this is them trying something new while they're still trying to figure out the show and stumbling a bit. Yeah, which is ironic. And we'll have this in the show notes, but Shout Factory had uh, some extras for their release of Untamed Youth. And they have a, a brief interview with Joel where he actually said that they really liked this kind of movie, the teen exploitation movies. They found that just the combination of like a really serious message with the obvious exploitation going on as, as being kind of their catnip. Hmm. So it was something that they returned to more and more because they thought it was just such a great genre to work with. So this movie is kind of playing with some racial and class issues and kind of putting, uh, you know, a shiny glean on it by turning everyone involved into pretty white teenagers. And when I saw this, I'm first, I was first like, cotton people being exploited in prison systems? Like, isn't this kind of taking the black experience and, you know, transferring it into a, a place where, you know, white audiences of the 50s could accept a story? But then it's it's not that simple. I mean, there's the Okies. I learned a little bit more about that. Like, the Dust Bowl pe- people and moving to California and how terribly exploited they were and all of that John Steinbeck stuff that I never read. Hmm. But And they do gesture towards like Mexican migrant workers, which were a cheap source of labor even as far back as the 50s and became a major immigration issue in the mid-20th century. Hmm. You know, it's kind of funny, the presence of Mexican laborers being driven in at the very end of the movie kind of resolves everything. It's a, it's a deus ex Mexica. Yeah. 
it seems to be what makes everything illegal enough to finally put the kibosh on it. Hmm. You know, everything was in this kind of interstitial space when you're using, I guess, white teenagers because they never run out of energy. (laughs) Their irrepressible rock and roll means that they have this endless source of energy and you don't have to worry about exploiting them. Well, I mean, if you're, if you're going to have someone doing something that uh, requires a lot of you know physical energy and endurance then i mean you are typically going to want to get younger folks who can handle that kind of thing <laughs> it's uh, true were you ever a farm worker adam no i never i never touched the stuff i i i, I had no i had no love of farms I grew up with farms, so some of my first jobs were farm stuff. I did stone picking, which when people hear that from the city, they're just like, what is that? Yeah, I have no idea, unless you're like picking stones to put in your pocket to end your life. <laughs> no, well, every time you you plow the soil, it pulls up you know, things under the ground, including stones, and you can't really plant anything if there's stones in the way. So you have to walk behind a tractor mm-hmm. and pick up every stone when you see. And you have to remember these are 100-acre fields, so that takes all day. Hmm. Uh, I've picked strawberries and honestly that is good work for a teenager with a young back you know it doesn't it doesn't wear you down quite in the way it would as a 30 year old Hmm. but I was again still very happy when I ended up getting an office job in my teenage years I'm like no this is way better yes I uh I I had the aversion to farm work I think kind of drilled into me just from the the tv show Garfield and Friends for I would tune in for the joys of Garfield and then for half the show it would turn to a farm animal program and I would leave the room (laughs) I think everybody did, yeah. but really, farm labor, that's what turned you off, Ugh, U.S. L- Acres. <laughs> yes. Why would I want to be with Orson? He's the worst character anyone could imagine. A pig who reads. <laughs> oh. And all they did was chores, so... <laughs> It was, uh, I think, at a very early age, I was just like, you know what? Farms suck. Stay away. I did. Like, I didn't grow up on a farm, but all of my neighbors were farmers. And the one thing that really struck me is that they never got to go on vacation. Yeah. Because you couldn't leave the farm for that long. Yeah, it's it's an investment. Yeah. Anyway, um, it was all wholesome and everything, but uh, this is not because this is an example of exploiting labor. And this is not unusual, and this still happens everywhere. All labor is exploitation, in my view. <laughs> but it's it's weird because it's combining like the issue with you know migrant workers and how poorly they're treated with what happens in a lot of penal systems where you know you get nickel and dimed for the things you absolutely need to keep working. And I thought they, that was actually one of the things they did fairly well. It's just like, well, you're going to need some new clothes. And you're going to have to pay for that. You're going to need new shoes and you're going to have to pay for your food. And it's just like, and then you just can't ever leave because you have turned into an indentured servant. What, they make them get dentures? Yeah. Oh, it's get worse and worse all the time. So it's just, it's a strange thing to put on this movie that's essentially just about a bunch of teenagers rocking around to rock and roll, but I guess it gets them all isolated in one space. It's that, and it's also, well, we need a melodrama. We need a melodrama that's going to appeal to uh, an audience of white youths. Mm -hmm. So what are we going to get? Well, we already have a name that could be applied to any movie, Untamed Youth. Well, I, I will say, if if for nothing else, you should watch this movie for the really weird-ass tractor that's in it that looks like it's in the middle of transforming into 
Optimus Prime. I think we've hit rock bottom when it comes to movie recommendations. When the pull <laughs> quote is, see it for the tractor. It's a weird tractor, guys. Like, the, he has to climb into it. He has to climb it like a ladder and then, like, basically wear it like a mech suit. It's so weird. <laughs> it's, it's a Gundam farming <laughs> experience. Uh, neon farming Evangelion. <laughs> But, I mean, it also kind of touches on the fact that this is something that a lot of predatory small towns do, is they really exaggerate fines. There's like there's certain small towns that you can't speed by, or otherwise you'll just get a $300 ticket automatically. I know this to be a fact, if only because, as a very young child, again, going back to Orson's Farm slash U.S. Acres, uh, I was exposed to something else that was terrible, which was Dan Aykroyd's Nothing But Trouble, commonly <laughs> referred to as the worst movie perhaps ever made, in which uh, a speeding Chevy Chase is sentenced to basically a carnival funhouse by an insane judge who wields too much power in his small, small town, which is basically a uh, funhouse centralia. And they more or less have to avoid getting eaten by a man-eating roller coaster for the rest of the 80-minute runtime. If you haven't seen it, it's not nearly as good as it sounds. No, it, so- it's, it sounds amazing, but <laughs> alas, there's a reason Dan Aykroyd directed exactly one movie. So here's a question. Joel and the bots don't really address any of these kind of more difficult resonances. Hmm. Is that irresponsible of them, or is is that just taking it to a place that wouldn't have been funny? I think it's more the latter, especially given where the show is at this point. Like, we have something that is pretty new. It's it's their first time on a network, right? Even even if it is basic cable, uh, you know they've moved away from KTMA, and they would have written exactly eleven of these shows. And from what we know of Side Hackers, the following season, they weren't even watching the whole movie, <laughs> <laughs> right. not all of them anyway. And so they would have been unprepared. And I think even if they had discussions for it in the writers' room and later episodes where. They are commenting and they are contextualizing these movies a lot and calling things out in a funny way. Like that, that may have been a discussion, but at this time, at this point in their careers, and as green as they are as writers, uh, they perhaps didn't have the tools to make this funny. And if you just if you just have you know a comedy show stopping to get preachy, you basically have Twitter. <laughs> So there's two things I noticed about this movie when I was reading reviews, most of which are just viewer reviews, like not any professional ones. Mm-hmm. One, boys like to look at Mamie Van Doren, and they like to express that pleasure. Uh, I think everybody likes to look at Mamie <laughs> Van Doren, Beth, for shame. And Eddie Cochran's in this. Yes, that's potentially the only get of this movie is like Mamie's not exactly at her best here. Uh, though this is apparently one of Mamie's favorites, so I don't know. Well, she got to sing and dance. Of course she'd like it. Uh, <laughs> she she uh, she must have a tin ear. <laughs> but you would not need a tin ear to enjoy Eddie Cochran, who I was not that familiar with, except as a name uh, that I'm sure I probably picked up watching, I don't know, that History of Rock and Roll special from the <laughs> late 80s, early 90s, way back when. And uh, Cochran is... I, I guess best known for the song Summertime Blues. Mm. That's what I know him best from. That's that's like the most recognizable hit rather than say something else or, or any of his other songs. So he plays the character Bong in this movie. His name is Bong? 
Yep. Oh, I missed that. <laughs> uh, wow. Uh, I, 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 hmm. Anyway, um, he, yeah, and he gets a, a musical number here, even though I would say that from what we hear of the song, it doesn't really have the Eddie Cochran quality, one of the reason why he's remembered. Like, the the two songs I ended up listening to the most over this last little while, right before we were recording, both Something Else and Summertime Blues are really good songs. And they have this kind of, like, blasting, chugging, proto-nuggets quality. Mm-hmm. Like, they're... they're and, and it's more than any other song that I've listened to from the period. It's, it's these fifties rock numbers that really cemented the link between the punk movement and rock from the fifties. It always, it always struck me as like, Oh, the Ramones and, and uh, punks who had, had expressed kind of like a similar love of fifties rock. It's like, Oh, well they must be like speaking through like rose colored glasses uh, or, 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 perhaps we're deliberately trying to reinvent it. And then like you listen to something like summertime blues and it has the energy, like mm-hmm. the, the, the tone of the lyrics is not quite the same, but it, it, it's not that far. It's not that far from punk rock in its early stages. Yeah. It chugs along like one of those big fifties cars, you yeah. know? Yeah. And so like, I guess that's, that's the, that's the circle of it. It's, it starts in the fifties. It goes back to, from the seventies to the fifties and try to recreate that. And like Eddie Cochran is, is who they'd be looking at. And like a lot of, uh, well, like a few rock stars from the 1950s, Cochran was doomed to die young. Man, it was really a bad idea to enter a vehicle of any kind in the 60s, 50s and 60s. Don't go into a small plane. Do not go into a car. You will probably die. Yeah. And uh, that's uh, that's unfortunately what happened with him. He he got into a a car accident and died of his injuries after the fact. Um, He'd lived, I think, for a few days after. And uh, it's it's really quite tragic he was uh he was friends with the big bopper and richie valance and he actually recorded a song uh dedicated to them and it's one of the few ballads that he deliberately wrote from what i I understand because i know that his initial album his uh record label wanted him to be a crooner and he wanted to do eddie cochran music like he has a he has a co-writing credit and I don't think it's honorary. I think it's it's the real deal. He has a co-writing credit on just about every song he's done. And so we we really do have a singer-songwriter with Cochran. So I can see why he has the respect. I can I can see it. And I think that perhaps Untamed Youth uh, catches him. Maybe the song is better without the riffing over it. I don't know. But uh, it, it did make an impression on me where his other songs did. Yes, in fact, their riffing over the Eddie Cochran song got them their first negative review, according mm-hmm. to Kevin Murphy. We'll just refer to the Amazing Colossal episode guide. The negative review came from a magazine called Gore Zone, mm-hmm. which is, uh, I've never heard of it, but it was dedicated to, well, gory movies. And they were upset about the fact that Joel and the Bots talked over Eddie Cochran's only song in the movie. So they ended up calling their show the most insulting blow to Comedy Central's viewership. <laughs> Just because they, they talked over a song by Eddie Cochran. Yes, and that, as it turns out, was written by Tim Lucas, who I guess is most famous for the video Watchdog 
magazines and the video watch blog uh and also uh from what i know screwing over some online communities shame on you tim lucas but he provided this review and uh, i have a copy of this very issue of course so. <laughs> <laughs> really? Yes. <laughs> um, nice. So I was, I was surprised while reading through the vintage. <laughs> uh, 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 it's for uh, August 1990. In August 1990, the Tim Lucas column goes on a tangent where he writes, The Comedy Channel has struck the most insulting blow to its viewership with a program aired Saturday afternoon and evening and in Sunday's wee hours called Mystery Science Theater 3000. The show's basic premise is that an astronaut and his two robot pals, stuck on the slow spaceship back to Earth, are being entertained with weekly transmissions of movies unfit for earthly consumption. What follows is a movie with commercial interruptions shown behind the silhouettes, italics on behind there, to really (laughs) register the, the, the disgust, of our three idiot hosts whose job it is to talk back to the screen with relentless, witless asininisms until the end. That's right. The reason you no longer go to movie theaters is now the reason you should sign up for Ha instead of the Comedy Channel. <laughs> and he goes on. He lists uh, he lists the movies that MST3K, quote, insulted. And the movies he's sticking up for are The Mad Monster, The Slime People, and Untamed Youth. <laughs> With the note that, yes, they talked throughout Eddie Cochran's only song in the film. And this little tirade ends with one can only hope that the sci-fi channel will present some of these state-of-the-art transfers properly when it begins broadcasting later this year. So it's interesting that uh, one, the sci-fi channel is seen as potentially the savior of these movies, when in fact (laughs) they would just prolong MST3K's treatment of them. But also it's interesting that uh, the objection here, which is interesting, is that not only these sacred cows being riffed, but these are better transfers than what was commercially available or what had been previously commercially available. And in that sense, I can, I can kind of see the, the potential fear or irritation that you can't get the nice version without it being covered by an unrelated show. Hmm. I can, I can understand that. However, most people were not sympathetic <laughs> because the following issue is filled with hate mail for Tim Lucas. <laughs> <laughs> well, geez, like how, how, what? He must lack so much self awareness to treat these movies with so much, so much regality. These B movies that were. I'm not saying they're not funny, and, and it's obviously a genre he really enjoys, but the fact that they don't seem to be giving it the amount of respect he thinks that these movies deserve is just so... Uh, get your head out of your ass, dude. Well, there's a lot of people who have uh, like just a basic problem with the, the premise, and uh, it's weird is that like I always appreciated uh, genre movies and obscure movies and sometimes downright bad movies, but that love was only enhanced by Mystery Science Theater. Exactly. It's such a narrow idea of what they're doing to think that there isn't some affection for these movies and what they're doing. Yeah. I'm reminded of my friend Rodney, who has a lot of my views, if not even more love for the weird trenches of cinema. But He's not a fan of Mystery Science and and never can be because he sits down, he tries to watch the episode, and he he tells me the same thing. It's like 20 minutes in. I just want to watch the movie. (laughs) At least he doesn't deeply resent the riffs. Yeah, he hasn't gone full Joe Dante yet. (laughs) 
everybody, it's time for the Shadow 13. It's time for the Shadow 13. 13 tiny tidbits about this movie and episode Untamed Youth. Go, Beth, go! Untamed Youth was directed by Howard W. Koch, who would later win an Academy Award. Or rather, the Academy of Motion Pictures, Art, and Sciences would award him the Gene Herschel Humanitarian Award in 1991. Unrelatedly, in the late 70s, he was president of the Academy. Koch produced several noted films, including The Manchurian Candidate, The Odd Couple, and Airplane, but his directorial efforts are not as well remembered. This, despite directing Boris Karloff in Frankenstein 1970, a movie which came out in 1958, with 1970 tagged on the end to make it seem cool and futuristic. Oh, what kind of show would resort to such shenanigans? One of the screenwriters of Untamed Youth, John C. Higgins, had a bit of a specialty and pulled from the headlines stories. His 1949 film Border Incident claims to be based on true stories from information supplied by the Immigration and Naturalization Service and follows two agents, one American, one Mexican, trying to stop the smuggling of workers across the border. Despite using the Mexican-American border as a plot device in several movies, Higgins was in fact born in Canada. Anyway, Higgins would later collaborate with Ib Reptilicus Melchior on a film called Robinson Crusoe on Mars, starring Adam West! John Russell, who plays our bad guy, Russ Tropp, would later star as Marshal Dan Troop in the early TV western Lawman. So, that's Tropp. Bad. Troop. Good. <laughs> For more information, go to the Lawman website, tvtrops.com. <laughs> The judge, who Trop bad, secretly marries, is played by Lorene Tuttle, who had a long career in vaudeville, radio, film, and television. The whole arc of 20th century showbiz. She even has a small role as the wife of the sheriff in Alfred Hitchcock's Psycho. Yvonne Lyme plays Baby, you know, the one who dies because Trop bad, won't send her to the doctor? Anyway, Yvonne Lyme, who later got married and now goes by Yvonne Federson, has been nominated for the Nobel Peace Prize five times. If you'd like to nominate someone for the Nobel Peace Prize, we'll have links in the show notes. Early on in the film, the sisters are asked where they live. Where do you live? Duquoin. Do what? Duquoin, Illinois. The biggest county fair in the country. Sulky races and everything. That's where we got our start. DuCoin did indeed have a fair that was focused on the sulky races, and sulky races involve horses going at a particular trot with a two-wheeled cart or sulky harnessed behind. A rider sits, low-slung in the sulky, in what looks like a perfect position for the horse to have a cheeky mid-race poop on the rider, but what do I know? When Jane threatens to give Lilibet an Italian haircut during their cat fight. You take that back or take a beating. Take the beating. Come on, if you want an Italian haircut. She's referring to a lady's hairstyle that was considered molto bella in the 1950s. The crop cut is tussled but sculptured and was considered especially fetching on brunettes. This is the first episode in the post-KTMA era where Gypsy enters the theater. She joins Joel in the bots and uses her teledyne vector to recreate the look, the feel, of cotton, because Tom has never felt it. Tom is grossed out by the cotton. It's like fluffy pudding. Yee. This is also the first episode where the MST3K fan club becomes the MST3K information club, because I guess it's better to have information than fans. The gang refer to the whimsical but ultimately creepy head cook of the cafeteria as Vic Tabak. Tabak is best known for his role as diner owner Mel Sharples in the Scorsese-directed film Alice Doesn't Live Here Anymore in 1974. 
Though the character was infamously chauvinistic, at least he didn't take part in sex trafficking like his counterpart in this movie. Alice Doesn't Live Here Anymore was so popular it spawned a TV spinoff called Alice, in which many of the actors, including Tayback, reprised their movie roles. But the real star of that series was the waitress known as Flo, played by Diane Ladd, who became famous for her trademark line, Kiss my grits. Kiss my grits, and that's time. That was a shallow skim into some trivia. I would like to get a little bit more in-depth about the music in this movie, and maybe not so much about how Mamie Van Doren wrecks all the songs. Mm -hmm. Yes, I mean, Mamie Van Doren is definitely bursting at the seams with talent, but sometimes less is more. Less Baxter, that is, as we will discuss him in a little corner known as The Scorner. I have to ask, how would you like? How would you consider the songs in this movie? Did any of them actually stick out to you? Well, I mean, they're very of their time. The first thing I thought was that, wow, somebody's really ripping off Elvis Presley here. But uh, beyond that, you know, they they were competently made and very much of the form of the late fifties. Yeah, it's kind of it's kind of disappointing because the music is given to us by Les Baxter. And Baxter is an interesting and weird figure in music because even though I, I listen to a lot of film music and I love it, uh, I love a lot of uh, or- orchestral and synth pieces that have come out of film and TV, but Les Baxter's best work is not in film. But Les Baxter has done a ton of cool things. And one of the reasons why he is best known for uh, collectors of instrumental records from the 50s onward is that, like Esquivel, he had a style, or at least he had something that a lot of people think of as his style, and that was exotica music. Mm. And from listening to the records that Baxter put out in the 50s, he considered the major figure, if not the first figure, of American exotica music is that he would create records that would simultaneously have these lush, grand orchestral arrangements, but mix them with uh, percussion or other embellishments that would simultaneously mix the Western sound of big band music and decidedly more, you know, quote-unquote, exotic flavors from, say, Asia or Africa. Okay. And the very first record that is considered the start of the exotica uh, genre is called Ritual of the Savage, Mm -hmm. which, despite that title... Is a fantastic album. Oh. Yeah, it's it's something that I love. The best way I can describe it is that it's basically American jazz with African percussion. And it's great. Yeah, that doesn't sound like a loser. <laughs> it's very elfmanish. It's it's it it like it's it feels like an origin story for Danny Elfman in music form. It's like, oh <laughs> he got a lot from this. <laughs> um I also don't think that Baxter was someone exploiting the angle of oh let's just try to appropriate new sounds outside of the west in order to try to find the next big hit like he also uh produced and co-wrote ema sumac's debut album the peruvian singer called extabay 
Wow. Okay. I don't know who that is, but that sounds interesting. Oh, my God. Uh, Ema Sumac has one of the most unique and haunting voices I have ever heard. And the the, the tracks on that album are, are are pretty hypnotic. But she she could hit these impossible, I, I guess, registers. She could sing in like the, the lowest baritone, and she could hit these incredible high notes. She had so much range. And Baxter essentially found this Peruvian singer and said, yes, we need to bring her to the States. Her sound's going to explode. But Baxter, uh, Baxter, I think, was recruited into film scores and perhaps would be thought of as a natural for a film like Untamed Youth, where it's like, oh, well, he he makes these best-selling records, then surely he'll know what young kids would want to listen to. Sort of like how John Barry got into the the film score business it was like the same way like he was popular with john barry and the john barry seven so naturally les baxter becomes a film and tv composer and i say tv because i was shocked to learn that les baxter wrote one of the most famous pieces of tv music of all time even more so than the night court theme oh he wrote what we think of as the lassie theme the, the whistling whistling? theme, yeah. The, the whistle one we fought over so many episodes ago. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that whistle theme is like that stupid dress picture on the internet where no one knows what color it is. <laughs> no one applied color correction to it. But yeah, that's 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 him. It's like, the, uh, I, I think any, uh, any composer would kill for uh, one credit like that. But he's got all of these interesting records that he's made. And uh, amazingly... Those those Exotica albums, as good as they are, they're not my favorite Les Baxter thing. And the the thing I would uh, really encourage listeners to get their hands on is a little album called Moog Rock. Moog Rock. That sounds familiar, actually. Yes. Is that for, is that named after the synthesizer? Uh, yes, he is indeed playing with Moog or Moog, <laughs> and it's all these prog rock renditions of classical music. Oh boy! And you have not heard Claire de Lune until you've heard Les Baxter's Moog Moog Rock. <laughs> Adam, I think you're going to have to put together a Spotify list for this particular scorner. Sure. I mean, if, you, if if it gets the kids listening to Les Baxter as they should be, uh, then it's well worth doing. So there was one segment that made me feel a bit uncomfortable but i think it was meant in the sweetest way where they basically riff on the fact that one of the ladies on here i guess looks a little bit like greg brady yeah i think that the the greg brady riffs which are among the better riffs in the episode uh and and leads to a, a kind of a nice sketch and one of the first sketches where that I, I, I that i can think of in this show where they single out a character or an actor and they detail their lives after the movie yeah i think that, i think it's just based on the haircut because the actress doesn't look anything like the you know greg brady but that hair Mm-hmm. That is Greg Brady's hair. That's like <laughs> so distracting that they have to comment on it. Yeah, I guess they have similar curly, short curlies. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, and my goodness, they know a lot about the Brady Bunch. Well, look at the ages of uh, where these guys would be when this episode aired. 
I never watched that show growing up, so uh, I, I am familiar with the '90s movies, which were oh, they were quite fantastic. enjoyable. Yeah, I really liked the the, the Braze movies, uh, if only because, uh, well, the 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 very fact that they were almost like a successful version of an SNL sketch becoming a movie. Yeah, <laughs> but also the the immortal line from a very Brady sequel: "I'm tripping out with the Bradys." <laughs> The Brady Bunch has the perfect kind of arc for TV shows as they are mocked later on for like the, 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 the way that Hollywood will kind of like recycle an idea and, you know, actors will cling desperately to the only work that they can get. So you've got the Brady Bunch, which runs for five seasons. It's a Sherwood Schwartz show. So, you know, it's terrible. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And the only thing great about it, and the only thing like remotely worth keeping, is that you know what? It's got this great opening, much like Gilligan's Island. It's got this great opening, <laughs> this unforgettable, iconic opening title, and uh, then the rest of it just is, is kind of bland. Um, but it ran for five seasons, to my shock. I, I was always under the impression because I saw the Brady Bunch in reruns on TBS because for some reason Turner owned all the Sherwood sports shows for some reason. Well, no, well, he, he, he bought a lot of crap. He also had the Hanna-Barbera cartoon. That's true. So he did buy a lot of crap because Hanna-Barbera <laughs> cartoons suck. Yeah, they're pretty terrible. <laughs> yep. Uh, great voice work, though. But, uh, yeah, this ran for five seasons. I always assumed there was only, like, a season and it was cheap to syndicate or a season or two and you know people grew accustomed to it being in reruns mm-hmm. and yeah. that's why it got popular but no this ran for five damn years um and of course it, you know created one of the most iconic tv cliches uh which was adding a kid when you have <laughs> a little kid already who's gotten too old and you need to add a better cuter kid and they and they added a character named Cousin Oliver, who I guess comes with two. He's two cliches in one Cousin Oliver from the final season of the Brady Bunch because he's added to the show to have another cute kid. But then when they follow up on the Brady Bunch, because even though he was in the final season, there was other continuations of the the Brady Bunch line and the Brady Bunch story. Uh, he's never mentioned. So the character arrives to boost ratings and be cute, and then the character disappears because he's unsuccessful <laughs> and nobody likes him. <laughs> and what follows then is that we have the original series. Then there's a there's an animated series by uh, at the very least, you know, Hanna Barbera has charm. There's no animation studio of that time that would have been worse than Filmation. I was just going to say, was it Filmation? Yes. Oh, <laughs> just the you know. Filmation only works when the stiffness and awkwardness where they're trying to pad out an episode to a full half hour. So you get a lot of like long takes where characters are just in a frozen pose where they react to something for too long. Um, That's the kind of thing that like Filmation did great where it provided a lot of unintended comedy as they were just stretching out the yeah. episode with limited resources. It had a Manos kind of feel to it at the best of times. Yeah, that's that's the only reason I can think of as to why anyone enjoyed Fat Albert. Because Fat Albert's not funny, and the characters aren't interesting, but Fat Albert getting bad news, and then a close-up on Fat Albert for what feels like ten minutes <laughs> is inherently funny. Um, but yes, there's a Brady cartoon that is done by Filmation. They have two pandas. I am not 
not kidding. They have two pandas. They have a wacky magic talking bird. And they also have a dog. So not to be outdone by the mascot animals of Scooby-Doo and other Hanna-Barbera shows, where there's usually uh, a group of normal humans who have, like, one wacky animal creature. Uh, The Brady's had a bunch. Plus all the the crappy superhero cartoons of the 70s, too. They always had uh, animals with superpowers, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's where you get your dino much. Yeah. So, oh, God, this is just pure 70s and pure pain. Mm -hmm. And, And that was the Brady kids. And then... I, I've always been curious as to how this could even happen, and I think a lot of people only know of this because of the Simpsons references to it, but Sid and Marty Croft of H.R. Puff and Stuff fame uh, got the rights to the Bradys and created the Brady Bunch Variety Hour, Ugh. but it's not the actors <laughs> kind of playing Brady sketches and then them having the actors show off their musical or other variety show friendly talents the brady's are the stars of a variety show in character i guess it's supposed to be like the partridge family i guess that's that's the closest thing i I, I come to making sense of it i did see something like i subjected myself to as much as i could take of the brady bunch (laughs) variety hour when i found a clip that was called movie medley in which they perform a number of popular songs from movies. Okay. With occasional instrumental bits for uh, uh, doing uh, moments of unnotable film scores, like the Pink Panther theme. And, my God, it's not Greg Brady, but one of the Brady kids sings Pinball Wizard while wearing Elton John glasses. And it might be <laughs> the worst thing I've ever seen. Well, I... I checked out a couple of these clips, too. And what's worth checking out... Uh, so the actress who played Jan Brady decided not to be involved. Yes. <laughs> so they have a look alike. So there's that. And this apparently happened a lot through... And this is why I say there was lots of specials. Because the, the joke is that you always lost a Brady girl in every one of these specials. But the boys always just sucked it up. Mm-hmm. Uh, but Bobby Brady looks... He was not a singer. He was not a dancer. And he looks absolutely miserable. Yes. Although he could not have been more miserable than me watching. <laughs> Uh, but yes, that's that's why there's that famous joke when they do the Simpsons spinoff showcase, and there's the Simpsons variety hour. Uh, Lisa becomes a bubbly, airheaded teenage blonde because the real Lisa Simpson didn't want to take part. That might be the best thing to come out of the Brady Bunch variety hours is the Simpsons ripoff. Oh, absolutely. But you would think that would end all Bradydom between that and the movie, because the movie is really just capitalizing on the fact that the brady brand just got campier and campier so why not uh i guess double down on that for an ironic brady movie uh which did have an an ingenious joke of what if the world was normal but the brady's acted as though they were still in the sitcom as though (laughs) that that could actually exist in the real world and it's surprisingly funny for yeah one movie and like half of the other movie, and I haven't seen the the Brady Bunch in Washington or whatever that belated third film was that nobody the Brady saw. Bunch in the Brady Bunch in the White House, and everyone says it's a stinker. Oof. I mean, I love the comedy stylings of Gary Cole, who is just brilliant as the senior Brady, as the Brady patriarch. But uh, uh, you know, I'm not going to take a risk on that one. Uh, but yeah, in between them, we get the Brady brides. 
And I, I can't for the life of me fathom why you just want to watch a show about the kids from a sitcom you watched have kids and then it's basically a remake of the sitcom you watch. This is the original Fuller House, you might say. I was just going to say, dude, have you not heard about Netflix's whole nostalgia model for millennials? Yeah, well, that's just it. When people are complaining about uh, nostalgia raids in this day and age, it's like, no, that's always been there. <laughs> that has always, always been there. There have always been weird show revivals uh, like that. Because as far as I could tell, it's naturally reacting to what happened to the the brady name in uh with the variety hour and is if anything almost like painfully down to earth but that was ultimately short-lived and that was the very last thing to my knowledge until the movies now there's one more i know that hold on oh yeah now there's a few more made for tv movies a very pretty yeah. christmas mm-hmm. oh that's Brady's. right yeah because a very brady christmas is like another reunion project but did that spawn another series um so the, the brady's was a series from 1990 it showed okay. them all as adults. It lasted for six episodes. <laughs> uh, it was an hour long. It had serious plot lines. Mm-hmm. I think it was trying to be a bit 30-something. But with the Brady's? Yes. Oh, that's that's a terrible concept. <laughs> that's such a bad concept. In a way, the Brady Bunch is like the perfect example of a core concept that just keeps getting mutated and mutated as like... Hollywood execs still try to just get blood from that stone. <laughs> it goes in so many different places. It reminds me of the um, the unfortunately canceled now uh, Maria Bamford show. Oh, that was terrific. Lady Dynamite. Yeah, the Lady Dynamite where she's on a series that morphs from something that looks kind of like her life into a crazy, sexy sci-fi thriller. <laughs> like, this is what is innately the problem with hollywood is it just it it just can't help but chew something up and bring it down and tweak with it and uh, and maybe the brady's are like the sterling example of that this might be much more than a hunch but i think we're nearing the end of the show but we still have time for a final factoid chris what do you got for us well, so Beth, you got really weirded out by the strange tractor. I got weirded out by a different little piece of technology in the movie. There's a scene in which Trop, bad, stops his car in the middle of the field and pulls out a phone from his car. He's got a car phone. I thought of car phones as things that existed in the 70s uh, to the 90s. Like, I would think of car phones as something Mitchell might have in his car or something. Do you know when car phones were actually invented? No. Like, I thought it was with the 80s. Yeah. No, it's it was 1910. Huh. Although, that kind of doesn't count. It was a guy in Sweden who installed a phone into his car, and then he would pull a big cable out and attach <laughs> it to the wires and the poles. Mm-hmm. So, okay. that was sort of a one, one-off deal. But, uh, yeah, it was in the 1940s and 50s that they started making cell towers that could do car phones. So, are we sure this is a car phone and not just, like, an APB? It probably was a car phone because they were largely used in these situations. You'd use them in rural areas. You'd have a big cell phone tower Hmm. because you needed a big honking huge transmission thing on the car, as I understand it. I. The reading got very technical very fast, and we'll have some links, and I'm not going to repeat all the technical details. But basically, all across the U.S. in 1947, there already were mobile telephone stations, land stations, and in central California, where I believe this movie takes place. So, yeah, totally could have been. Was totally a thing. 
If you've been affected by the issues on this show, if you grew up on the Brady Bunch, or if you'd like to ask Beth and Adam anything, get in touch with us. Our website is itsjustashow.com, and we're on Twitter at itisjustashow. We'd love to hear from you. The show is made possible by listeners like you. For as little as $1 an episode, you can help us research and record this show and listen to our super fan bonus bits, bloopers, chit-chat, sometimes entire segments that didn't quite make the cut, but which are still fun enough to share. Find out more at itsjustashow.com slash Patreon or patreon.com slash itsjustashow. And we now have merch. You can have a big old t-shirt with our big old logo on it with the beautiful satellite of love drawn poorly by me. You can go to itsjustashow.com slash store to look at that or any of the rest of the Megaphonic FM merch. And if you want to follow up on anything that was mentioned today, you'll find links in our show notes at itsjustashow.com slash episode slash 51. Chris, unlike the film... Your hosts and your listeners are thoroughly tamed olds, and we cannot go on about this movie any longer. What will we be looking at next time on It's Just a Show? Well, we all love Mamie Van Doren. We've all enjoyed these girls gone bad. But let's look at something a little different. Let's give something for those who want to think about Fabio. Let's watch the episode where they all dress up like Fabio. That's going to be Season 5, Episode 19, Outlaw, Theoretically of Gore. Oh, get out of here, you disgusting worm. You mentioned Fabio, but not Jack Palance. This is the best thing he ever did. Oh, man, even better than Sea Slickers too. Can you believe it? <laughs> or that movie where he's Dracula? <laughs> uh, this is one of the greats. The riffs are, if I recall, some of the sharpest stuff they ever did. So I am really looking forward to it. The Sword and Sandal movies are always fun. Jack Palance is always fun. (laughs) And uh, there's some really enjoyable, diabolical performances in uh, Outlaw of Gore. If you like it cheesy, then this is a a fun episode. Excellent. Well, until next time. Horn out with your Dorn out. (laughs) Your Michael Dorn. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And don't get eaten by the Harvester. Of course. (laughs) Of course. All right, take it away, theme squad. You have to remember these are 100-acre fields, so that takes all day.